Hello, hello. This is Reality of Reality. I'm Aliza Rosen, a longtime TV producer and development executive. Every week on the podcast, I talk to interesting people in all aspects of unscripted content. Okay, so before I introduce my guest, I'm going to talk about a few of the things that I've been watching this week, other than the Reagans, which is the subject of today's podcast. I concluded the four-part documentary series on HBO called Murder at Middle Beach, which I've told you guys about. Incredible, incredible. I loved it. It was so well done. Such a unique way to tell a true crime story through a son looking for the murderer of his mom. It was very well done and I think had a satisfying ending with hopefully more to come. I highly recommend it. I watched Casual, some more of Casual, which I told you I'm really enjoying on Hulu. It's a great binge that I'm trying to make last because I'm enjoying it so much. And that's pretty much it. I watched SNL. That was pretty much a waste of time and nothing else that's sticking out to me from this week. So today on the podcast, director extraordinaire Matt Turnour. Matt is extremely accomplished. He's directed some epic documentaries like Valentino, The Last Emperor, Scotty and the Secret History of Hollywood, Studio 54, Where's My Ray Cohn, and most recently, The Reagans, which is a four-part documentary series on Showtime. It explores really the mythology of the Reagans and kind of breaks down really what was going on behind the scenes from Reagan's early years as an actor all the way until the time that he left the White House. Uh, I highly recommend the series. I had a really great conversation with Matt, who gave me some good juicy behind the scenes stuff as well, stuff that's not even included in the documentary and expanded more on his choices that he made, more of sort of the mythology of Reagan. And we talked about how the film series really connects the dots between Reaganism and Trumpism. Welcome to the podcast, Matt. Thank you. Really happy you're here. I was engrossed by the Reagans and really wanted to have you on because I'm always so curious, not just about the content itself and the history, but how a project like this gets made. And you have a rich history of doing very archival heavy, deep dive projects. So This one is no exception with four episodes on Showtime. I want to first ask you why you wanted to do this. Why did you want to tell a story about the Reagans? It's been on my mind for quite some time. I think that uh, the story of the Reagans, it's purposefully the Reagans and not just Ronald Reagan, is an undertold story. And I think that the myth of the Reagans has been propagated uh, very effectively over the years by mostly pro-Reagan forces uh, and the entire Republican Party in all of its manifestations, really. And I think the myth has dominated and the truth has fallen away. So I wanted to really tell a counter-narrative and correct the mythology of the Reagans, as I've seen it. So when you talk about the myth, which I think is true, tell people what you mean by the myth. The Reagan myth is that he was the greatest patriot and the greatest president of all time, and that everything he did was uh, perfect and unimpeachable. Uh, 
literally and figuratively in some cases. And there's a kind of grandfatherly image that's grown up around him. And the Republican Party, I think, has really taken Reagan as their brand. Now, this is all, of course, until Trump, because Trump swallowed the Republican Party whole. But a lot of the foundations that Trump has built his brand on were really uh, built by the Reagans. And that was the other part of my mission, which is to connect the dots, show that past is really prologue for the Trump era. And another aspect of the myth I thought needed correcting was that among people who became never Trump Republicans, the kind of what you call the Reagan wing of the Republican Party, it's still very acceptable and really encouraged to hold Reagan up as the, the party that we need to get back to. But there were many, many flaws in Reaganism and in Reagan, the politician and the president. And those have all gotten whitewashed out, airbrushed out, I guess would be a better term. And I think you really need to look at facts. And there's been such a tending of the Reagan myth in the post-presidency. I think the strongest efforts of any post-presidency among the coalition of true believers uh, attached to the Reagan myth. And the Reagans in their lifetime were myth makers and very good at it. And I think you can attribute a lot of this distortion of the Reagan reality to both their own efforts and these very passionate keepers of the flame. I believe that the keepers of the flame have a particular motive, which is that Reagan was a masterful dog whistle racist and uh, leverager of grievance politics, which is a very successful formula for the Republican Party but he got away with it because he was such a great presenter of his message and was so clever in the way he did it. And the Reagan tax cuts and the uh, suite of uh, government reforms and restructuring programs that were enacted in the Reagan 80s really uh, re configured the social compact in this country and finally achieved the, the right-wing Republican goal of reversing the New Deal and Great Society as an agreed-upon agenda. And that is paramount for the Republican Party, whether it's Reagan who leads it or Donald Trump. Yeah, I mean, it couldn't be more clear. You didn't even have to connect the dots in a profound way because they were happening in front of our eyes and ears in terms of how you organize the series thematically with race and with um, economic policy and with sort of astrology slash conspiracy theory. I mean, everything is just so in your face down to the slogan, make America great again. It's uncanny. And, And you also in the last episode showed how the Christian right and evangelical politics or how the evangelicals infiltrated into Republican politics that really took hold 
with the Reagans. So the the path is so clear that it's almost eerie down to Tony Fauci talking about how Reagan ignored AIDS, this global pandemic, the way that Trump is ignoring COVID. I mean, it's, it's really kind of, it gives me chills. I mean, I don't know if even down to the AIDS slash COVID comparison, you're probably making this way before COVID, but I'm sure you were thinking about that once you started editing. I don't know what your production process was. That's exactly right. Certainly the fourth part in my original plan was to tackle the criminal mishandling of the HIV AIDS pandemic, which took place starting at least publicly in 1982, it became a public health issue. And for almost the entire uh, Reagan 80s, it was ignored as an issue um, and just absolutely mishandled, not addressed. Uh, you could say wished away, but I think that would even be giving them too much credit. I don't even think they were actively engaged enough to even wish it away. Uh, I think they played politics with it to some degree, and all of that should remind you of our presence. So when the pandemic unfolded, which was halfway through our production, we were all jolted personally by it, and our production was temporarily thrown into chaos like everyone else's life and work. But then the uncanny, eerie, and really frightening similarities became self-evident, and we got Tony Fauci to talk about it. He was on our list from the beginning. We didn't think we'd get him because he was so engaged in um, the pandemic, but he was willing and very generous with his time and gave us an interview. Again, I don't want to uh, double back over a lot of the things I gave in my first response, but the foundations of the Republican Party that Trump took over and has exploited were really laid in the Reagan 80s by Reagan and his acolytes and also his financiers. The dark money of the far-right super PACs personified by the Koch brothers and the Heritage Foundation and the Cato Institute, all of these really well-funded right-wing organizations that uh, helped Reagan rise to power in the 70s and then take the presidency in the 80s and never really have taken their foot off the gas. Um, They have been purposefully financing a right-wing economic policy that's led to what we call today the 1%, which required the reversing of the New Deal and the Great Society and whatever organized welfare state was instituted by those political uh, movements. And Reagan was their vessel. He was their first successful frontman. And Trump is another version of that. He's a present day frontman and salesman for these ideologies. Of course, 
he's self-interested in a different way than Reagan was and brings criminality and a level of uh, narcissism, solipsism, self-interest, and uh, I would say fascism to the executive branch in a way that was not conceivable 40 years ago when Reagan uh, made it to the Oval Office. Yeah, I think that's a great point and a scary point because what made Reagan so effective and still so mythical is that he was essentially, and I think you really made this point, he was really an empty vessel in every way where these, all of these people and interests were able to sort of, you know, go through him. I mean, he seemed to have some core beliefs, but generally he kind of went where the wind blew. I mean, he was the head of SAG and then he became a union buster. So he sort of went wherever the political fortunes took him. So my point is, is that if you strip away someone like Trump and you bring back another Reagan, sort of affable, charismatic, seemingly gentlemanly person who is not motivated only by himself, but you still wrap him with all of the same policies and beliefs, that's the scarier thing to me, actually. Yes, this has come up. Uh, Bernie Sanders, I caught MSNBC a couple of weeks ago, and he made this point, which is um, we have to be very vigilant. We have a short reprieve. Um, if you make the minimum assumption about a Biden presidency that it would be four years and not eight, uh, we're still in a time of great peril. And I think that in a lot of ways, uh, Reagan is the more important cautionary tale because he was a very smooth performer and people didn't look at the actions. They looked at what he said and not at what he did. And that persisted in the post-presidency. So you get a whole class of people who label themselves as never Trumpers or in come together in organizations such as the Lincoln Project, which I will say, I think the Lincoln Project did very fine work uh, in this election cycle and very impressive work. And a lot of the members of the Lincoln Project are wonderful spokesmen and very effective spokespeople for the anti-Trump movement. So not to take that away from them, but that same type of political operative always held up Reagan as a heroic figure and an inspirational figure. And many have literally said that he's the reason that they got into politics, but Reagan's actions that led to the, uh, dismantling of the social safety net and a lot of the layers of government that were protective for the body politic and made us more vulnerable, for example, to a pandemic or made uh, black and brown people much more vulnerable to crises, whether they're economic or, or health, public health crises. And we're, we're seeing something that's a double whammy in that regard right now. And we're seeing the horrific fallout from it. And a lot of that would be not as bad if the anti-government sentiments that were part of the Reagan philosophy and the right-wing Republican philosophy, really the entire Republican philosophy, 
hadn't taken root so deeply. So uh, we really need to look at what Reagan did and we need to look at how it became an acceptable face of Republicanism and center right and right politics in this country. And there needs to be a real close examination of that because clearly the guardrails have been smashed. Trump has happened. Uh, the election has reversed that, but we're still very vulnerable. I would add one more thing, which is that there's a sort of class of historian as well that I think has really given Reagan a, a free pass and not as thorough a reckoning as he should have as an ex-president. And I, I've never quite understood why the, the marketing of Reagan, which was uh, encapsulated by his two campaign slogans for the election in 80 and the re-election, which is the first, was let's make America great again. The second was mourning in America. These were very well modulated and well executed political marketing schemes. And the historians have kind of bought into it that this was a uh, you know noble figure who was uh, a responsible political actor and executed his presidency with you know, wonderful grace. And uh, they don't hold him accountable for dog whistle racism and ransacking of the federal government, uh, which was encapsulated by one, another very effective Reagan slogan, which is uh, government is not the solution to our problems. Government is the problem. I think you did a really good job with the historian's and commentators that you included of correcting that record, even though you did include a lot of people who were either working for Reagan or sort of adjacent in that time, like James Baker and George Schultz and Stu Spencer. How did you decide, and of course, Ron Reagan Jr. So a few questions about the interviewees. First of all, of course, I'm so interested what happened with Patty Davis and Michael Reagan. And, and if you were in talks with them. And then secondly, sort of how you decided to choose the people that you choose to speak in the doc. Well, it was very affected by the pandemic in some ways. Were all the interviews uh, done in the pandemic? Uh, half of them were. I was, and I was thinking John Alters was, that's why it was outside. Am I right? Yes. <laughs> I love Good him. Guess. I love their show on Sirius, Alter Family Politics. Big fan. Oh, John's so smart. And yep. uh, that show's great. Uh, yes, you can tell if you watch closely, I think that uh, most of the indoor interviews are pre-pandemic and most of the outdoor interviews are post-pandemic. Yeah, that's um, what I figured. They all look great, though. I mean, you made it seamless. Well, we had to figure out a way to shoot these interviews without the normal process, which is that everyone flies in and, you know, a big crew shows up in, inside your house or inside a hotel suite. That wasn't possible anymore. So we, we did figure out a way to do it. And I'm very proud of all the people who were producing and um, supporting the production because 
it, it seems under the circumstances relatively seamless. I think you have to watch pretty closely to figure out what was before and what was after. Obviously, it became an imperative in most situations to shoot outdoors. Uh, we filmed Dr. Fauci outdoors, uh, and he graciously had us on his back porch. And same with Colin Powell and a host of other people. When we started the process, I always start with a big list that includes almost everybody. And uh, if anything, I over interview. Uh, my background's in print journalism where, you know, all you need to do is uh, pick up the phone and it doesn't cost you anything. Of course, when you are making a, a series or a film, every interview is a, an enormous financial undertaking. But the pandemic hit halfway through. So in some cases, people backed out. Uh, understandably so. Who wants a film crew coming to your house when there's a global pandemic happening? However, people really did rally not only on uh, my production team, uh, and I credit them enormously and for their willingness to work during the pandemic and make it work in a, in a way that was safe and effective, but also the subjects we were interviewing. So I I start with a broad list and then I generally rank it when I'm doing something historical by age and just for actuarial reasons, uh, we start with the people who are the oldest because we don't want to oh, smart. lose anybody. And, you know, we had a couple broken hips on this one, actually. <laughs> well, George Schultz is a hundred, right? George Schultz is a hundred. Incredible. He, he seemed uh, fine. He's Great. Um, <laughs> he's completely with it at a hundred. Very impressive. Um, James Baker, I think is, was 90 or about to be when we interviewed him and Stu Spencer, who really invented Reagan, the politician. He took this washed up actor and made him the governor of California uh, to a large degree. Uh, Stu, I think is 94, 95 now. And um, I mean, the, the vitality and the, the, the coherence of all these people and they're not very impressive. So, um, so what happened with Patty and Michael? I'm assuming you reached out. Yeah. Um, so Ron Reagan Jr. Is all through the film and yeah. he gives a really epic interview. He does. And I, I couldn't have been more impressed with the analysis he provides, the perspective the color he adds and the truth telling. Uh, I really found him to be extraordinary. It was, I think, an eight hour interview right on the eve of the pandemic. Um, we did reach out to Patty Davis. I believe we were working with a very accomplished uh, talent booker for this. Uh, Patty Davis, it became clear, was engaged in another project that I don't think came to fruition. So she was unavailable at the time. And uh, then as the pandemic took hold, we really had to um, curtail the number of interviews we were doing. And Michael Reagan fell off the list at a certain point. Uh, but uh, the Ron Reagan Jr. interview in terms of the human aspect that he brought to it was so epic. Um, we felt very grateful that we had that. And um, I would have probably done 10 more interviews at least if the pandemic hadn't hit. 
but we were limited. Yeah, he was amazing. I guess the only thing I felt I wanted to know, which maybe didn't have a place in this, was sort of how, what his relationship was like with his dad. Did you get any sense of that? Like as a man, as a father, as a son? Yes. Uh, you know, some things don't make it in the final cut. Uh, I wish I'd had a couple more hours, really. That's a four-part series. So we got a nice chunk of real estate. But, I mean, you're dealing with someone whose life spanned the 20th century into a little bit of the 21st and was a very successful in many different careers, actually. It was a movie star, a radio star, um, politician, TV star, uh, head of the Screen Actors Guild. I mean, it's a big life, actually. So four hours probably isn't enough, but we did what we could. The uh, human story of Ronald Reagan's relationship with, in this case, Ron Reagan Jr. is really interesting. And there was some material that I would have liked to have put in, but we didn't as much focus on that. One thing that Ron Jr. said that I thought was really interesting was that um, his father could be quite present in the moment, but he felt that when he, Ron Jr., left the room, that his father was capable of forgetting that he existed. And I thought that was a very telling um, insight into who Reagan the person was and certainly Reagan the father was. Uh, and, you know, sometimes you just can't get the good stuff, every bit of the good stuff in, but that certainly was a, a really good insight. That tracks because what really, I wouldn't say shocked me because I think that you kind of proved this point, but sort of a very erudite bite at the end of the series Somebody said, you know, I realized that Ronald Reagan had only one friend and that friend was Nancy. And it seemed like he I, I know people like this who just can sort of only focus on one other human being in their life. And that definitely seemed to be the case. And like you said at the beginning, there's a reason why you called this the Reagans. And I want to talk about Nancy because she's actually a fascinating figure. And in my mind, after watching your series, I feel like might have been the most influential first lady potentially in politics, her and her astrologer. So talk about what did you know about that relationship and her influence going in and what surprised you, if anything? Well, I think the Reagan marriage, which has been examined a lot, um, was marketed and very effectively and very purposefully, like every other aspect of the Reagan persona. And I think that it was very shaped from its earliest days because it began in Hollywood in the cradle of the studio system. He was a Warner Brothers contract player and she had been an MGM contract player. They, they met when both of their careers were stalling in the movie business. But his whole Hollywood persona, as all of them were at the time, was very carefully crafted and 
uh, framed by the studio publicity departments. And in his case, he had an added booster in Luella Parsons, who was one of the most powerful gossip columnists of the time and happened to be from Dixon, Illinois, which was Reagan's hometown. He became a special project of the famous gossip columnist Luella Parsons. That's sort of forgotten history and I think is very telling that from the beginning, the Reagan image was being carefully crafted and he and Nancy Reagan both absorbed a lot of the techniques of Hollywood studio system image making. And I think that's part of the key to understanding who these people were, why they were effective, how they conquered the media industrial complex, and that helped them enormously in taking the presidency and then maintaining an image during that period and maintaining an image afterward, which is a lot of what the series is about. The marriage, again, Reagan was a divorcee and he was the first divorced person to be elected president. This was a still a enormous political handicap when he was an active politician. Trump is the second uh, divorced president. Twice. Yeah. <laughs> about and, to be thrice. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. And uh, don't apologize. Uh, and Reagan, um, the Reagans um, were entirely codependent. Uh, he was reluctant to marry Nancy Reagan. This is all known, but erased from the record, really, and very purposefully by them. They, they tried, even though it was all a matter of public record, they tried really hard to, to wish this history away. And they were quite effective in doing it. If you go to the Reagan Museum and Library in Simi Valley, uh, Jane Wyman, his first wife, is relegated to a photo play magazine cover that's at the dusty bottom right corner of one of the 500 vitrines in that museum. There's barely any mention of uh, the marriage to Jane Wyman. And this was really the first years of the Reagan legend was built on the stardom of Ronald Reagan and Jane Wyman. Right. And their two kids, I think, right. They adopted one and had one. Yeah. I mean, that whole nuclear family Hollywood studio system story was very carefully constructed when Jane Wyman, uh, dumped Ronald Reagan. Um, he was devastated, right? Yes. I mean, it was, uh, a big low point in his life. Uh, and he was a kind of, uh, promiscuous bachelor for many years there in Hollywood. And no one really ever wants to talk about that part of the story. Oh, tell me and more. Then, well, I don't know <laughs> that much more, but I mean, there, there's, there's a lot of legendary gossip about Reagan at the garden of Allah, which was a fast and loose Hollywood hangout. And this was known stuff in, in a small town. Uh, and then Nancy Reagan uh, pursued divorce, uh, fading movie star, Ronald Reagan. He was president of the Screen Actors Guild, so he had a big prominent position in, in the town. And she finally landed him. They had a shotgun marriage. Uh, right. Was that was a great story, by the way, I think from Kitty Kelly saying that they kept saying that 
Patty was born prematurely. So the, the dates would line up. Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, this was common practice in right. Hollywood of that time, but it just shows you that the Reagans kept these techniques uh, in their toolkit to basically live one type of life, but uh, tell the world they were living another. And that hypocrisy that I think is elemental to them and their marriage uh, is important to understand in understanding them. So they often said and promoted themselves as one thing, but they were in reality very different than the image that they were trying to uh, foist on the American public. Do you think that they were in love? Because that's certainly the, the image that came across, that they were really devoted to each other. Yes, I think they were. I think that like every relationship there has evolved. But the reason it's worth talking about that is that um, they started out as one thing, which was quite different than where they ended up. And they wanted to erase the beginning story. And they began to push really hard this kind of cocoon Romeo and Juliet <laughs> romance, you know, I mean, uh, that the, if you read Vanity Fair in the eighties, the number of times their favorite song, which symbolized their marriage, our love is here to stay is referenced is just nauseatingly frequent, <laughs> but that eternal romance is I think true, but it had a lot of other aspects to it in its origin, which they tried to uh, wash away. And I think if you want to understand who they are, you have to understand how they tended to this image and tried to portray themselves once the marriage was up and running as the perfect nuclear family of the 1950s where the man's the bland breadwinner and the wife is the even more bland. It's like uh, Ozzie and Harriet. Yes. And they literally were playing that in long form commercials for General Electric. Who that was, was crazy. Those videos were amazing. And can you believe it? I mean, it no. really defies belief almost. <laughs> it, I, it does. And their house was so cool. That mid-century modern. Of course, I dug a little bit to find out. I guess it was in Bel Air. It's funny that you said that they really designed their life and politics. You know, they modeled it after Hollywood. And I wrote in my notes when they introduced, when you introduced the astrologer in episode four, I wrote in all caps, so LA. When I first came, I live in LA now. When I first came to work out here, probably 15 years ago, the first thing, the woman I was working with, the first thing she did was give me the name of her astrologist, who was also Jennifer Aniston's astrologist. And I thought like, God, that is so LA to have all of global decisions go through an astrologer. It was just perfect. It is pretty remarkable. And some things do never change. I agree. Uh, the GE home of the future was where they lived before the presidency that's in Pacific Palisades. Right. Pacific Palisades. Sorry. They ended up in Bel Air post-presidency in the uh, 666 St. Cloud Road, which Nancy insisted be changed to, I think it was 664, 668. Okay. In fairness, I would have done that too. You don't want the sign of the devil to be no, your address. That's bad, Juju. Uh, <laughs> there, there was a lot of superstition and there 
was an astrologist. There were many astrologists, and Ronald Reagan was really deep into astrology even before they were married, he and Nancy Reagan. Uh, So it's not just Nancy, uh, although he sort of tried to play it off as that, and Stu Spencer sort of plays it off that it was Nancy's thing, but it was really Ronnie's thing as well. But what I think is also uh, understudied and um, really underplayed is the fact that Nancy was becoming more and more influential in the presidency and was relying on Joan Quigley, her astrologist at the time, to really influence Reagan administration policy. And this was Don Regan, the chief of staff, whom Nancy hated and got fired, revealed a lot of this in his book at the time. But again, like with most things, Reagan got kind of written out of the history. And it really is remarkable when you look at the reality of it, you add more information that I was able to put into the the film now that we know more and a lot of people are no longer with us and willing to speak more freely. And it also has uh, overtones of the kind of magical thinking that was endemic to Reagan and also I think resonates today where we have another magical thinker as president who um, wishes things into being in his own mind at least. And uh, those beliefs have nothing to do with reality. And Reagan was that type of person as well. That's a good point. So the sheer amount of archival in this project must have been so overwhelming. I'm so curious, just a sort of behind the scenes question. How do you approach the archival? You had so many incredible pictures and videos and just tons of things couldn't even believe existed. Like you mentioned the commercials they were doing. How many people work with you to dig that up? How long does that take to gather? I just can't even imagine how laborious that is. Well, it's very laborious. It's uh, for this type of movie, which is really interviews and archival, it's essential. And I'm personally obsessed with archival film and images anyway. So all of your projects are pretty much archival based. Not really. There's some that are cinema verite. And uh, to be honest, I actually prefer the ones that are verite. And I always put some archival in them and I try to get the best of the best. But a lot of when I'm doing archival, I want to have things that no one's seen before, primarily. So when we embark on anything, the archivists and the producers and all of the staff that's involved in archive goes deep and we, I give them the mandate to find things that have never been seen. And we, we did it on this one. There's footage of Nancy Reagan in the sixties that was part of a only seen once before a documentary feature called Nancy first lady of California. And uh, I mean, it's a verite film. It has just the most remarkable access and you just, see Nancy Reagan in a way that the the Nancy Reagan we know was uh, never offered to us. I mean, she's the governor's wife at that time in the first year of the, of the governor's term in 1966, 67. So, Is that when she was complaining about everything? She didn't like the house? She had to... 
That's we right. do everything. Uh, well, there was a big, if you were a, a fan of Joan Didion, uh, there's this, yes. Joan Didion did the best Nancy Reagan coverage in the 60s. And uh, Pretty Nancy is the name of the title of one of these essays she wrote. And she really got Nancy's number. And um, she told the story of Nancy Reagan rejecting the Victorian governor's mansion and having a special other mansion, a secret mansion. Yeah, that's crazy. <laughs> uh, rented for her. And then a part of the story, it even is worse than that. I mean, she had them build another governor's mansion, but by the time it was finished, they were already out of office. And they no, no one ever ended up living in that governor's mansion. So, so much for fiscal responsibility. Yeah, really. At least rent it out to someone else. <laughs> so I probably should have started with this, but I wanted to end with it, I guess. How did you, what was the process with Showtime? Were they on board from the beginning? Did you start the film and then realize it was longer and you wanted to pitch it as a series to them? How did that work? Uh, no, I presented it as a series to Showtime and they took it up and they've been wonderful. And I, I really have to applaud them for their uh, interest and appetite in something that was outside the box of the normal political saga, especially about the Reagans. And it's really never been done before in this way. I, I just was, so again, back to my motivation for doing this, you know, there just hasn't been a widely released counter narrative to the Reagan narrative and even the conventional, well, even the kind of big name biographies tend to fall into sycophancy mm -hmm. with the Reagan story and tend to kind of just stereotype it as what it was shaped to be by the Reagans and their acolytes and boosters. So Showtime was, uh, was on board from the beginning and, uh, they have been really supportive and uh, extraordinary. You know, like what you just said, this and sort of other projects in that vein that are counter narratives, you always hope that the right people see them in terms of, like you mentioned, the Lincoln Project and those people that are still, you know, yearning for the nostalgia of the Reagan days and Reaganomics, et cetera. You hope that they'll watch this, right? And maybe consider that there's a different narrative. Do you think that that's happening? Or do you have any sense that if you've gotten feedback that's happening? I think the jury's out. I've been thinking about this a lot because you wonder what impact your work's going to have. I've referenced the Lincoln Project and the Never Trump Republicans who, I mean, they're not stupid. They're a smart group of people. I think a lot of them cast their lot um, with the wrong, uh, ideological tribes, uh, Stuart Stevens, who's a Lincoln project principal wrote a book called, it was all a lie about the, uh, deceptions of the Republican party that led to Trump. So he's definitely at the vanguard of the revisionism among powerful GOP operatives. I think there has been a sea change and I don't think the reflexive embrace of Reagan will be immediate again. 
but it's, I think the jury is still out. Interesting. Well, I wanted to get into your other projects, but we're kind of rounding out the time here. I will say everyone should go on Altimeter Films website to see all of the incredible documentaries that you've done and have been acclaimed as well. You have such an amazing library of docs that you've done. And I'm wondering if you can share what you have in the works now, because I'm sure you have something coming up. Uh, I'm at the stage with the several things we're working on where we're not by contract allowed to say. How is so annoying? I'm so sorry. But uh, yeah, they're um, things that are brewing right now. And then a lot of the documentaries are being made into feature films. Uh, So Scotty and the Secret History of Hollywood is uh, being adapted for... Uh, narrative and um, is it at the casting stage yet? I'm so curious who would play him. Oh, that is such the question, isn't it? <laughs> it's not quite there. Okay. But if anyone wants to write in with their suggestions, I will. Uh, I will read all the mail. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> so, that just seems like a a home run feature for sure. Yeah, I think it could be really fun. And again, that's the ultimate counter narrative of um, Hollywood, but. A different part of Hollywood than uh, the Reagan narrative. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for doing this. I really enjoyed the series. It's so enlightening, really well done. And I'm sure it was a 24 hour day job for a long time. So appreciate all your hard work. It really paid off. Uh, one, it was a job I uh, enjoyed doing and uh, enjoyed speaking with you about it. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.